You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to see you all here. Uh, Also, good morning to those who are joining us online as well. Uh, Speaking of that, hopefully uh, we're only a few months away from being able to meet together together soon without all these restrictions and whatnot. Uh, Hopefully maybe by the end of the summer. Time will tell, I guess. But uh, on that end, I've been thinking a lot about that, especially this week, uh, about how much I miss social gatherings, whether whether at church or in our homes, especially because the passage from the Gospel of Luke that we're going to be going through this morning is all about that. It's all about Jesus and his disciples and how they're invited over to uh, the house of a Pharisee named Simon. And so they're dining together, they're hanging out together, and I'm like, man, that would be nice. Um, and on that end, you, you, you may be wondering too, why would Jesus go to the house of a Pharisee? Well, why, why would the Pharisee invite Jesus over? Uh, but you may have noticed throughout our series so far that Pharisees and scribes, they loved to have discourse and debates and enter into weighty dialogue with one another about the scriptures and about the interpretation of the law, and not always for nefarious reasons, but for genuine knowledge too. The Pharisees were genuine in their, in their, in their desire to understand the scriptures. Um, so this is most likely why he has Jesus over to his house, until all of a sudden their conversation is interrupted by something unexpected and yet incredibly profound and beautiful. And so please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 7, 36 to 50, and we're going to go through that together. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. So Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table, excuse me, in the Pharisee's house. Sorry, got a frog in my throat. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why. She loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, 
Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's the word of the Lord. So one of the amazing things about this moving scene of, of a sinful woman approaching Jesus and worshiping at his feet with love and adoration is, is that it conveys one of the greatest truths about the grace and love of Christ. That nobody... Nobody is too far gone to the point where they can't receive it. Or as Tibetiani Abwile writes, you can't sin yourself out of the possibility of forgiveness. There's more grace and forgiveness in Jesus' little finger than there is sin in the vilest sinner. I love that. that that's such a, a beautiful and reassuring truth. A truth for all of us. A truth which reminds us that we can always approach Jesus with confidence and that we'll find forgiveness no, no matter what we've done. On that end, we don't know exactly what motivated this, this woman to approach Jesus in this moment to anoint his feet with perfume and, and to wash his feet with her tears. But we can gather from the narrative that, that Jesus must have reached, recently touched her life in a major way. Right? Maybe she'd received forgiveness or healing from him at some point, or, or maybe she'd heard and accepted Jesus' teaching and invitation of forgiveness and rest, and, and therefore wanted to seek him out to thank him. Luke, Luke doesn't really tell us in the narrative, but what we do know is that she was the type of woman who'd had a very public reputation of being a sinner. You can only guess what that would mean. She was known for being a sinner. The type of person many people would see as, as someone who's beyond the point of no return, right? That, that, that finding forgiveness or, or atonement from God for all her wrongdoing and, and all her shame, out of the question. Undeserved, impossible, the amount of sin was too great. This is how Pharisees like Simon seem to view her. And so maybe she thought of herself that way as well. But yet, at some point, again, maybe even earlier that day while Jesus was ministering, we don't know. But at some point, Jesus had offered her the impossible, the forgiveness of all her sins. And so it's almost as if this joy of, of the good news, of, of being freed by Jesus from the shackles and, and weight of her guilt and shame, along with her amazement and, and wonder of, of even being known and accepted by Jesus despite every single thing that she'd done. It, it compels her to, to seek him out in order to offer, her, offer him her tears of, of repentance and, and her tears of thanksgiving and her devotion and her worship. Her reaction to Jesus here is the reaction of one who knows and understands what they've truly been given. Of someone who's fully aware of the size of their debt before God. A debt so great that nobody could pay it, especially not themselves. And yet Jesus did. Jesus pays it for her. Again, we're reminded here that no one is out of reach that any and all who come to him by faith can be saved and set free. Which means if you're here this morning, if you're listening online this morning, and, and, and you're someone who feels like you're too unworthy 
too undeserving, too far gone in your sin, if you feel like God's given up on you or, 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 or that you have to somehow make up for all that you've done before he'll accept you, don't believe it. 1 John 1.9 is, is a promise for anyone and everyone, no matter what they've done or who they are. It says, 1 John 1.9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's incredible. Even if you heard that a hundred times before, a thousand times before, it's incredible that anyone who repents and believes in the name of Jesus by faith will be saved and completely forgiven. That's the good news. You're never too far gone. So don't hesitate, believers and unbelievers alike. Come to Jesus. Lay your sin before him. What, what I like about the woman in this passage is that, is that she doesn't care whether others see her actions as an inconvenience or as an annoyance Right? The opportunity to, opportunity to come before Jesus was, was too important to pass up. And so as soon as she heard that Jesus was reclining at this table and that there was access to this household, she took that opportunity. So like her, I encourage you all to respond to his invitation of forgiveness while you have the opportunity. Right? Don't hold on to, to your sin. Don't hold on to your shame. Right? Why wait? Why, why, why hold on to those things longer than you have to? Or as it says in Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the days of rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, respond to him. Come to Jesus today. Or as Anya Buile again writes, to be a big sinner is not the worst thing. But to not ask for forgiveness through faith in Jesus is... You can recover from a sinful past. The church is full of people who have. But there is no recovery from God's judgment against sin. Right? And, and, and let's make no mistake, Jesus has taken that judgment upon himself at the cross for us so that, that you don't have to bear it. His grace is given freely because he's already paid the cost. But you still need to believe it and receive it by faith, just as the woman did. Simon the Pharisee, on the other hand, is, is unaware that he's witnessing an incredibly profound and beautiful moment of repentance and grace. Right? He, he doesn't get it. He's just disgusted and annoyed that this filthy woman has made her way into his home. And at this point in the story, the, the Pharisee, Simon, he stands as a direct contrast Jesus, right? He stands as a direct contrast to Jesus. The Pharisee, in his self-righteousness, can only see in the woman a great sinner who is unforgivable and unwelcome in his presence, an outcast worthy of judgment, or as he would have said on Twitter, you know, she's someone worthy of being canceled. Get rid of her. But Jesus, on the other hand, in his compassion, he sees her great sin as an opportunity to love greatly. Jesus sees our great sin as an opportunity to love greatly. 
this, this should cause us as a church to, first of all, be thankful and blown away. But secondly, it should cause us as the church to pause and ask ourselves, how do we treat or view other sinners? Especially those with obvious sinful lifestyles or those with a reputation for being sinners. What, what do we think to ourselves about them when they come into our church or when they approach us for help or when we work with them at, at the office or at school? Do we view them or think about them like Jesus does? As precious images of God? Do we view their situation as, as an opportunity to give love and compassion? Do we desire to show them the same grace that we receive from Jesus ourselves? Or do we view them like the Pharisee does? As unclean people worthy of judgment and condemnation. Deserving whatever consequences come in their way since they brought it upon themselves. This is the mindset of Simon when she enters his home, right? And on that end, I should mention that according to my research, it was customary back then for, for people to gather around like the outside of a, of a household whenever honored rabbis and guests like that were dining there, which means it wouldn't have been out of place for that woman to be in the vicinity or to have access into the home like that. She, she doesn't intrude, right? That might sound weird and unheard of in our, in our culture, especially during COVID when we can't even gather in groups right now. But back then, again, it was normal for windows to be open, for doors to, be, to remain open, for others to, to gather around so they could listen in on the conversation between the rabbis and the, and the teachers and stuff, which is kind of cool. Though, on the other hand, it wasn't customary or culturally appropriate back then for a Pharisee to publicly eat or associate with a woman in this type of setting, especially if they were sinners. So while her, while her interruption wasn't culturally unheard of, it was still pretty, a pretty bold move on her part to enter the house and, and approach Jesus this way. I mean, put yourself in her sandals, right? Knowing, knowing what people would say about her knowing the possible reactions people would have or the possible repercussions. It, it would have taken great courage and boldness and determination for her to push through the crowds gathered, gathered around the house and, and to push through that mental fear of man or that potential embarrassment in order to enter into a Pharisee's house and then humbly approach Jesus like that. Wash, wash his feet with her tears and anoint his feet with perfume in front of everyone. How many of us would do that? Like, well, I don't want to interrupt anybody. Oh, I'll be too embarrassed. What will they think of me? No, she doesn't care. Jesus tells Simon and, and, and now us that, that the reason for, for her intrusion is because she loves Jesus. She doesn't need any more reason than that, right? She doesn't care what other people think because she wants to be with Jesus. Luke 7.47 says, Therefore I tell you, 
Her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. She can't help but worship him because she's experienced a life change. Her love is an expression and response to the love and grace that she'd received from him. And so isn't this how we should seek to live for and worship the Lord? With abandon and without a care for what others think? The cross is certainly foolishness for those who don't believe. But who cares if they think we look foolish? Who cares if they walk by church on a Sunday morning and they, and they see us standing with their hands in the air or on our knees? Who cares what they think? Because for us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. It's everything. He brought us from death to life. He deserves all our worship and all our devotion. Not our apathy. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, for the love of Christ compels us. Does that describe your life? For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, Jesus, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. The, the woman's displaying this for us, right? Clearly the love of Christ was compelling the woman to love much. Clearly, it was her experience of the love of Christ which gave her such a desire to honor him in return by anointing his feet with that perfume and with her tears. Clearly, it was, it was the love of Christ which transformed her life and caused her to weep those tears of joy at knowing the amount of sin that she'd been forgiven of. Again, her reaction to Jesus is the evidence of her faith and is the only proper reaction of one who truly knows and grasps all that they've been given and set free from. As it says, we love God because he first loved us. In other words, and again, those who've experienced the love of Christ will be compelled by it. Compelled to love him and live for him and to subsequently love others in the same way. As Wearsby again writes, how is this woman saved? She repented of her sins and put her faith in Jesus Christ. How did she know she was truly forgiven? She had the assurance of his word. And what was the proof of her salvation? Her love for Christ expressed in sacrificial devotion to him. Her devotion Christ was the evidence that she'd truly been changed and set free. Her life joyfully belongs to Christ because he saved her. In contrast to her, though, again, stands the Pharisee. It's his own house, and yet unlike the woman, Jesus tells him he, he failed to show any love or honor to Jesus at all. 
right? Instead, he actually dishonors Jesus even more as he thinks to himself how Jesus must not even be a prophet, as many people have been saying, or else he would have known that this woman who's touching him was clearly a sinner. This is what he's thinking to himself. Probably too afraid of saying it out loud. But the irony of this moment is that Jesus actually proves him wrong. He proves he's a prophet, and even greater than that, when he forgives the woman of her sins without her even having to mention them out loud, and also when he reveals and responds to the judgmental inner thoughts of Simon. As Scripture foretold Jesus, the Messiah, he knows the thoughts and hearts of us all, and he reveals them. In the same vein, he speaks directly to them in order to bring us into a place of repentance and healing. And this is what he does to Simon. Luke 7, 40 to 47, let's read that again, this conversation. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. Jesus says, a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. And then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Again, this woman knows how much of a debt she's been forgiven of, and this compels her to return that love with the same intensity, kissing Jesus' feet nonstop. As Jesus says, those who've been, who've been forgiven of much will in turn love much, but those who haven't will love little. What this means for us first of all, is that, is that the measure which we organically and supernaturally desire to love Jesus and honor him in our lives, as well as the amount we, we seek to love others and the compassion we have on others, especially other sinners, th these are good indicators of whether we're truly boasting in the grace of Christ for our salvation or whether we're just self-righteous and deceiving ourselves. we take an honest look at our lives. Those are good indicators. And Simon then, in direct contrast to the woman, is displaying through his lack of love to both Jesus and her that he's been forgiven of little. Not that forgiveness isn't available to him. It is. It absolutely is. As I've said, no one is too far gone. And, and Jesus, the only one who can forgive, is sitting at his table. Forgiveness is right there. The problem here, though, is that Simon's unwilling or unable to see or admit his own sin, and therefore 
unable to admit his need for forgiveness. Right? He doesn't ask for it because he doesn't think he needs it. And, and this is the problem for many of us today, especially in this, this culture and our first world world that we live in. We think we can provide for ourselves. We think we're fine on our own. And so we write off this very idea that we need a Savior, that we need forgiveness. Warren Wiersbe writes again that the parable that Jesus told him does not deal with the amount of sin in a person's life, but the awareness of that sin in his heart. How much sin must a person commit to be a sinner? Simon and the woman were both sinners. Her sins of the flesh were known, while Simon's sins of the heart were hidden to everyone except God. And both of them were bankrupt and could not pay their debt to God. Simon was just as spiritually bankrupt as the woman, only he didn't realize it. If Simon was willing to admit the debt he owed, like the woman was, he'd have been right there with her, weeping at the feet of Jesus and being freely cleansed of his sins. Again, this is why Jesus came. This is why he died for us. Not to condemn us in our sin, but to save us from our sin, to free us, to make us new. John 3, 16 to 18. You've heard this before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't, don't try to hide it from him or, or deny it like Simon. Besides, again, the, the Lord already knows all about it. He knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. And he knows your deeds. And yet he loves you and he wants to restore you. Again, Jesus is the Savior who forgives even the biggest of sinners. Or as the Apostle Paul would say about himself, the chief of all sinners. His forgiveness is free. It's available for you. So acknowledge your need for it and joyfully receive it, just like the woman does. In, in fact, at the, at the end of the passage, Jesus reiterates and reassures the woman that she's been forgiven because of her faith, and then, she, and then he tells her, go in peace. And this peace is a peace between her and God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this, this peace is, is, is a complete life change. It means that we're no longer enemies of God in our sin. It means we no longer have to live in guilt or fear of punishment from Him. Instead, through Christ, we're now children of God, living in the power of His grace and strengthened by His Spirit walking in the joy of his salvation, right? We have a peace in his presence, a true and lasting peace which the world cannot provide nor take away. 
Jesus gives us that peace when we come to him and find forgiveness. But on that note, during this conversation, the bystanders or those, or, or those around the table, they, they start to ask one another, who is this that thinks he can forgive sins? Right? Th- this is shocking to them to hear this. Because in forgiving sins, Jesus is claiming to be God. Nobody can forgive sins except God alone. So in claiming to do that, Jesus is claiming to be God. And so let's answer the question, how is Jesus able to forgive sins? Well, because he's the one and only promised Savior, sent from God, born of a virgin, so fully God and yet fully man who took the punishment for our sins upon himself, past, present, future, big or small. He took the punishment. He took the weight for all of them through his death on the cross. He humbled himself to the point of death as a perfect sacrifice, and he proved that his sacrifice was complete and acceptable before God when he rose from the grave three days later. And now he sits at the right hand of God as the only one who is worthy as the only one who has the authority and right to judge the living and the dead. Which is why Acts 4.12 can declare that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. That's why he can forgive sins. Because he took them upon himself. Because he is worthy. And so if, if you're like the woman in this passage and you're carrying the weight of your sin and guilt, believers and unbelievers alike, if you're carrying the weight of your sin and guilt, simply come before Jesus and confess them to him and confess him as your Lord and Savior. Don't harden your heart or try to hide your sin like Simon did. And don't count yourself out. You're not too far gone. Instead, bring it, all to the, uh, to, bring it all to the foot of the cross. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ by faith, and you'll find forgiveness. You'll find new life. You'll find peace. Come to Jesus, and you'll find yourself joining in with all the other believers who now live for Christ, who can't help but rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. And on that end, for those of us who have found salvation in Christ and are walking in that salvation, let's remember to to continually examine ourselves. Let's never forget the debt of sin that we've been forgiven of and the righteousness and peace that we've been given in exchange. Let's not forget the amount of love that Jesus has shown us, precisely so that we never hesitate to love much, so that our lives would be compelled by his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for, for your love, your grace, and your compassion that you showed that love to us when you sent your one and only begotten Son into the world to live that perfect life of obedience that we couldn't live and then exchange that righteousness 
for our sin at the cross. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, that in him you've made a way for us to, to have our sins removed, washed clean for us to be covered in righteousness so that we can stand in, in the peace and joy of your presence with confidence so that we can walk in newness of life. Lord God, I pray that as believers we would never forget what you've done for us. Lord, that we would never lose that, that passion and devotion which the woman in this passage is displaying, Lord God. That in the knowledge of what you've done for us, that we would live wholly devoted to you for the glory of your name. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us our sins. Forgive us for when we haven't lived compelled by your love. When, like the Israelites, as we learn through the children's story, when we've continually turned away from you, when we've forgotten that, that you are the Savior, when we've forgotten what you have done for us and started to live for ourselves. Lord, forgive us for that. And as we come before you this morning, as we come to the foot of the cross, as we come before you, Lord, we, we honor you, we lift you up, we glorify your name. And I pray that in the power of the Spirit, you would compel us to live by your love, Lord, for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name.